Thanks for tuning into my new show, Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People. I'm Steve Ray, author of the book, How to Get U.S. Market Ready. And in my previous podcast, I shared some of the lessons I've learned from 30 years in the wine and spirits business, helping brands enter and grow in the U.S. market. This series will be dedicated to the personalities who have been working in the Italian wine sector in the U.S., their experiences, challenges, and personal stories. I'll uncover the roads that they walked, shedding light on current trends, business strategies, and their unique brands. So, thanks for listening in, and let's get to the interview. Hi, this is Steve Ray, and welcome to Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People. Uh, This week, we're talking with uh, Rika Harris, an old friend in the wine industry who has been extraordinarily creative this year in um, setting up her winery to deal with challenges uh, of the pandemic and also exporting. Rika, welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me, Steve. Tell us a little about yourself and your background in uh, both marketing and also in the wine business. I was just looking at thinking back that I started my first job in marketing exactly 23 years ago as a junior brand manager at Danon in uh, in Budapest in Hungary. And that was the start of my marketing career. And I've I've done some brand management with, uh, with Danon, then I moved on to advertising with Leo Burnett, and I had Procter & Gamble as, as, um, as my client for five countries in Eastern Europe. So the beginning of my career was a deep dive into <laughs> fast-moving consumer goods, and it was very creative from the beginning. And, and then in 2002, I moved to Italy. And at the end of 2002, um, I, with my husband, we inherited this tiny winery. And that was the start of my journey into wine. Um, I wasn't really a wine drinker at, the, at, at that time. I preferred cocktails. So it was a really good deep dive into the industry, going from fast-moving consumer goods to, to a slower industry was my first marketing challenge in my brain. How, how, how do I adapt everything I know about marketing and selling and, and marketing fast-moving products to marketing a product that you produce once a year? So that, that was my transition into the wine industry back in 2002. You switched from being a traditional, classically trained consumer marketing person all of a sudden it became real. It's no longer a client. It's no longer some distant monies that are coming into your cor- corporation from another corporation. Now you're responsible for everything. Yes, that was that was very, um, that was a difficult thing in going from having also millions of dollars in budget for marketing to owning a winery and becoming an entrepreneur and learn how to be an entrepreneur with no budget. So that was that was really difficult, but I think it was an essential move for me to become who I am today. So I know how to juggle millions of dollars of, of marketing budget to doing things without any budget. Big change, uh, especially when uh, the success or failure of the enterprise rests entirely on your shoulders. Now, the winery, uh, tell us a little bit about that. It's in Italy. Tell us about the winery and the kind of wines that you make. It's it's a I like to call it a micro winery. We're in the province of Treviso in in Veneto, and um, we have our own vineyards and we make wine with our own grapes. So it's we don't buy from others and and we make our own from you know vineyard to 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 selling it. It's all in our hands. 
And we, we obviously, we produce Prosecco. We're in the land of, of the, you know, the original province of Treviso, where before 2009, Prosecco was allowed to, to, to be made. We also have uh, Refosco, Dal Peduncolo Rosso, which is, which, which is also local to the northeast of Italy and some parts of, of Slovenia. We also have Cabernet Franc, and we have the grape called Verduzzo Trevigiano, which is obviously very local. And it makes a wonderful fizzy white wine. Cool. And how big is the uh, the operation? How many bottles you produce? Uh, we go up to twenty thousand bottles a year. It's it's small. And was it operating as a winery, or had it gone kind of derelict, and then you resurrected it? Well, it was my husband's dad's, and it it was his hobby business. Like in so many cases, it, it's a it's a good hobby where you know people go and spend their time and money. He didn't keep any records of anything. So when he passed away, uh, suddenly we had no records of anything regarding his hobby business. So basically we had to start it all over and put our own money. You know, normally young, younglyweds, they put all their money into their own houses and starting a family. Well, we put all our money into the winery. <laughs> so that's, that's how we started back in 2002. Okay. So one of the things um, I know about Rika and uh, my listeners now will know about her is she's very opinionated uh, on marketing subjects, has written a lot uh, that I see on LinkedIn and talks a lot about, we talk to each other when we're at international conferences and you're very outspoken in, on your points of view on that. Give us a sense of one of the statements you made is wine marketing sucks. You can tell us where that came from and, and why you said that. <laughs> Why Marketing Sucks is a piece I wrote a few years ago, and it came out of frustration for what I saw around me. And it started because I was interviewed by an Italian journalist about why marketing. And I soon realized that there's so much confusion about what marketing is, using wrong words and wrong concepts to describe things. And it just shows how the state of of, of marketing and the knowledge of what marketing is, is, is not, the standard is not high enough in my opinion, and it continues not being high enough in the wine industry. And the more uh, digital forward we become, the less professional we are in the marketing that we do. I, I put myself in there because I am a marketer, so I don't want to stand out and, and think I'm not, <laughs> I'm not like the others, but having a professional uh, experience and and training, I think, is very important. And I, what I see is that that is becoming to lack more and more. And the confusion of what marketing is and how it needs to be done, the fundamentals of what marketing is, is missing in the wine industry. So everyone just jumps to the next thing. Everyone does what everyone else is doing, and nothing stands out. If you look at advertising, they're all the same. All the same, the bottle, the vineyards, the you know some background about you know where the grapes are grown, and that's it. Nothing really stands out. If someone stands out with something closer to lifestyle, or something something closer to what consumers would get hooked on, they get immediately slammed for doing something that is not in you know doesn't stand well with the traditional wine marketing. So. Uh, that's why I think it sucks. It doesn't put the wine consumer as the hero in the in, of the story 
but it's always product driven. And we know that being product driven in the wine industry, how many how many brands do we have in the world? How many wineries do we have in the world? What, is everyone really saying the same things? Okay, so um, let's fast forward to that's kind of the world uh, you live in. That's the reality. Here you have this uh, strong background. And now you've got a winery and you've got limited resources and COVID hit. And you found yourself with a problem early last year. So why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, well, um, COVID hit everybody, but uh, going going back to a year ago, very few people will remember that Italy closed down ahead of the other countries. And also within Italy, my province was two weeks ahead in lo- locking down ahead of Italy. So it was so sudden. It was so unexpected. It was no, we didn't have a plan B. Like, I don't think a lot of people had plan Bs. And all of a sudden, here we were, not knowing what to do. And you see your plants going nowhere. Then you see that orders that have been given were canceled. You see that orders that were planned never arrived. And we were just sitting here, locked down. We couldn't leave more than 200 meters away from our house, from the winery. That That's how locked in we were. And, and nothing was moving. So... It was after the first hit of like, oh, what do we do? <laughs> okay, so we have to throw away all of our plans, all of the marketing and everything that I had planned, I had to throw that all away. And in the confusion of not knowing what to do and understanding that I cannot plan ahead because whatever happens next week will change. The governments were changing restrictions. We're changing what the, what we could and what we couldn't do. There was confusion about who can continue working and who couldn't. And, and all of the wineries in Italy until mid-April had no, if I remember well, we didn't know whether we could operate or not. So there was a lot of confusion going on. In the meantime, the whole world closed down. And um, I realized walking up and down the vineyard here that the only thing I can do is with what I have here at the winery. And that was the stock that stayed here that we couldn't sell because there were uh, uh, cancellations and orders that didn't come through. So I said that nobody can take away from me. No government decision, no COVID, nothing can happen that will prevent me to try to do something with the wine that I have in stock. And that's how I started thinking, okay, so that is a certainty that I can hold on to and create something around it. And honestly speaking, if uh, uh, Steve, you know me, I don't do what others do. So I try to always do something differently, take a different angle. I look, everyone's going to the left. Okay, then I'm going to go to the right. And that's, that's the way I operate in everything I do. So while all of the wineries were running to um, speed up their e-commerce uh, websites to sell their wines and, and promote it with a lot of price promotion, uh, you know, buy a case of six bottles and I'll send you, I don't know how many bagging boxes or the other way around. I did something completely different. And I concentrated on only one of our products, which was the Prosecco that was here unlabeled. And 
and there came the idea. I pulled all the strings of everything I've learned in the past from working in advertising agency, working with creatives, working with brand creation. And I put all that together and I said, well, we have the unlabeled bottles of Prosecco. We have millions of Prosecco lovers out there. And I give the product and let people create this new brand. So that that was the initial idea. And then and then the 6,000 project was, was born. 6,000 because I was giving up 6,000 of our bottles of Prosecco for this project. So that would have been the maximum amount of wine that we could sell through this project. And, uh, and that was it. I called all the creatives in the world to participate in co-creating a brand, a label, new label for this wine that was specific for... 2020. Uh, let me go back and clarify that. So when you said you called the creatives in the world, basically you made it user-generated content. I mean, people who you could reach and influence, you created a competition for them to, to help you design a new label. The, the project had different stages. There were, there were two audiences to the project. One was creatives, designers, and then the other audience was Prosecco lovers who would want to buy uh, the wine. So I had two, two sets of, of, of audiences to communicate with and create value for them to, for them to say, okay, I want to participate. And basically for the creatives, the brief was extremely simple. Um, having worked with creatives, I know that the simple to the point the brief is, the easiest for them, easier it is for them to, to create something in their, you know, the creative thinking needs to be liberal enough. And um, so the brief for them was to, I said, don't think wine world, think your world. Um, let your mind wander free, design the Prosecco label. You'd be proud to open with friends and family. What's inside is already extraordinary. So the whole idea was for them to say, how are you feeling about 2020? And how would you want this Prosecco to look like on your table at the end of the year? So what would make you feel proud and be like, okay, now it's time to pop this bottle. And um, it, it, a lot of amazing ideas came through. We had 74 accepted designs by, by, by the time I, I closed the, um, the submissions. And a lot of them were really moving. They were very personal. They were all about what 2020 was meaning for them, right? That this whole locking down or also the hope of towards the end of the year, can we be freer? So there was there were a lot of very, very, very nice designs coming in. And then the audience of the Prosecco lovers, I allowed them to choose their favorite labels. So it was engaging with them and co-creating and having them decide which label will go on the final bottle. So that, that was the 6,000 project. How did you uh, create the list to whom you reached out to? I mean, that's one of the challenges I think most wineries when they look at this will face, well, how, how do I get this word out to people? How did you expand your reach? Yeah, well, you do need collaboration. So one, of, one, of, one very important aspect of this project was collaboration um, with people that, had, that either could increase the reach of the project. For example, I worked with uh, Richard Siddle, uh, the buyer, 
So we agreed that when I launched the project, he would help me with the launch. So there was an article on the buyer and, and then everything just happened very fast. That article was seen by the, the group called, uh, they escaped my name. Hold on. Give me a second. While you're doing that, Richard Siddle is publisher of The Buyer, which is a UK publication, trade publication, um, and has tremendous distribution and reach. So that was a fortuitous friendship. So his tweet was seen by One Minute Briefs, which is a Twitter account that today has, I don't know how many, 20 or 30, even thousand designers that work with One Minute Briefs. And he reached out saying, I'd love to run your brief with my, my designers. And it was that week, I launched the website on the 8th of June. On the 10th of June, we ran the brief with One Minute Briefs designers. So that gave an immense push in reaching out yeah. to the creatives. In the meantime, I also posted everywhere in all social, social media with hashtags and everything. So that also created some interest in the project. So that, that you, you cannot think of doing everything on your own with you know, working, collaborating together with people who are invested and interested in doing this with you, then it really helps. And that was the initial push to get the, the first target audience, which was you know, designers, to get interested in the project. How much did it cost? I mean, isn't that one of the questions the client always asks? Okay, what's the budget? And I mean, your question to the client is, what's the budget? And their question to you is, how much is it going to cost, right? Yeah. So, so the whole, well, as I said at the beginning, like we're a micro winery. It's not like we have a, you know, huge budget, but we do have the need to sell the wine that was, was, was sitting here. So we understood that some of the costs will have to be incorporated into the, the, the pre-sales system that we put up. The upfront cost of running this three months campaign, as we can call, was 800 euros. So that's not much. That's very limited. Yes. And one of the things that I think is very important, you know, for marketers to understand that not everything has to cost a lot of money. You can get a lot done if you think creatively. And, and, and trying to solve problems creatively, but especially also with collaboration. I couldn't have done this project without the collaborations that I did from the, the, you know, the agency that helped me understand how to set up uh, uh, a Shopify. It, was, it ran on Shopify website to Outshinery that did all of the designs for them to look equal at the moment when I opened for voting. So that was very important to standardize how each one of the designs would look like on the bottle to Tina, who did all the, you know, help me with creative wording, which is also very important to have a copywriter that helps you in expressing exactly what's going on and how you want to reach to people. So and and Richard with the buyer, these collaborations were essential to make it work. So you have some special contacts and skills and assets that you brought to the party here, you know, the network that you have. Um, is this something that other wineries can replicate, if not, you know, and scale? That's the question, replicate and scale, but not necessarily specifically in regard to what you did, but the concept of how you went about it, did it, and customized it for your particular need. Customer acquisition was the objective, as you described it, not how to sell more to my current customers. Tell us about that. 
once you you work very closely with your, your your own customers, you understand how much more you can sell to them, or how much more how pushy you can be to sell more to them. So I, I immediately understood, and also once you have good basics in, in in understanding how marketing works, and when you have to grow your business, then you understand you have to go to customer acquisition instead of just pushing a lot of new sales through the existing customers. So it's a balance you have to find between getting new customers and making sure you keep the current ones and and and, and balance that out. So my decision was to go for completely new customers and um, and keep the project separate from our winery uh, branding as much as possible. One, because I... I didn't dare to risk too much to attach it to my winery. And what if it doesn't work? What if it damages somehow the image of my winery? So I, I, I didn't dare to do that. And actually by creating a completely different site and a new, new name to the project, it helped me in starting from scratch to build a different story. Right. And that new story was already catered to the two audiences very specifically. So from the beginning, I wanted new customers. And it was it, it was very different from the work that I actually do on a daily basis with the winery. You know, having the aim to to acquire new customers, um, you know, at the end of the project, looking back and I looked at the people who bought the wine, 85% of the people were new customers. So um, one way to put this is really engaging with a completely new audience and have new clients come in was, was it, it turned out to be successful because I mean, 85% of the, of the people who bought were people who never bought before. So a corollary to that is metrics, um, establishing uh, measurable goals in the beginning, tracking what's happening so that when you look at that data at some time after the fact, you're able to uh, put some context and uh, size to it. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So I think the brilliance of that is, you know, we know that we know that the critical issue for marketing all brands these days is to tell the story. And everybody's got to have a story that that has a point of difference that makes a difference. In your case, the opportunity for the potential participants was they can become part of the story and selling the wine was the story. It was not about the estate or the quality of the juice that's in it or uh, all the other things that normally producers pay attention to. In this case, it was come with me with the journey, engage with me, be part of this. And the wine that you're serving at your dinner table uh, as, as now your story, not just you, the consumer, your story, as opposed to um, Rika's story. I thought that was just brilliant. Exactly. It was, it was a project completely driven by the people digitally. So from the only thing that we did as a winery was to give the bottle and the juice in it. Everything else was co-created together with the designers and the people who participated in also in buying the product. So that, that, that we all, we were all invested in it. We all had our motiva motivations to make it work, <laughs> you know? So the key question is, did you sell all the wine? No, we didn't. <laughs> we didn't sell all the wine. As I was doing all my, a good marketer starts with a lot of Excel files, Excel sheets and counts. And immediately I realized that 
how do I balance the volume with also making sure that I replace the lost revenues? So finding that balance also meant that I hope we won't sell all the 6,000 bottles, right? That was one of the things. Because if I sell all those 6,000 bottles, then I'm going to have not enough here for, you know, whatever happens in the future. What if the production in 2020 isn't big enough that I'm going to need to have wine here to continue selling to our customers? So that was one of the things. How do you manage that Um, uh, looking ahead? But also I said, we're not going to have tourists coming here. I, I do have to say that where the winery is, is is smacked in the middle of a touristic triangle. So we have the beaches not far away. We have Venice just over there. And we have the mountains. Uh, a Cortina d'Ampezzo is an hour and 10 minutes away from here. So we have a lot of tourists coming through June, July, and August. And we knew that we're not going to have them coming in. And then I said, well, I have to replace that revenue. And how do I do that? Balancing my, my, my stock, but also selling and getting new clients. So I played a lot with the price. And I knew that pushing the price ceiling for the Prosecco would allow me to not sell all 6000 but it will also allow me to make it, make it the minimum that I need to replace what I was foreseeing as, as a lost revenue. So it's a bit complicated to, to, to show it like this. If I had like a slide, I would show it like in a minute visually, but in words, it becomes difficult to say. So we sold about three, uh, 1,300 bottles altogether. So I'm at guilty one here in terms of burying the lead. One of the things we haven't talked about was how the stuff got sold. And one of the solutions you were able to create was a way to sell direct to consumers in the United States from Italy. Can you give us a short and simple explanation of without the details of how that worked, but conceptually what happened and, and how it worked? You know, when COVID hit, all of the companies had to adapt and, and find ways to, to move on. And um, by the time mid-May, I think it was, we found a local company here that works uh, not only with wine, but works a lot with local wineries and sending wines. And they offered the solution for us. They have an important in, in the U.S. So all of the wines went through their own importer. So we gave them the, the boxes and they took care of all of the rest. So it went from here to the U.S. importer's um, warehouse where it got cleared. And then from there, it went to consumers. So you sold in reshippers of 12s or 6s, whatever, and then this company then repacked according to the orders that came from the United States? Or did that happen in the United States? No, we packed everything here. Okay, so it was per order. It was per order. What was really interesting for the U.S. that I think is worth uh, saying is, is, is the grouping of orders. So we realized that the more people would buy, the cheaper it would become for them to, per bottle to buy wine. So my friend Anna Keller from, from Keller Estates, she was one of, one of the people that immediately jumped at this and said, I want to help you. And she reached out to her customers, people that buy Anna's wine, 
In the U.S. She's a U.S. producer. Yes, she's in Sonoma. And um, she she reached out to her customers and said, hey, this is what it is. Would you like to join in? And so she put a list together of people. So all that grouping went to her, to her place. And then by grouping all these orders and delivering it into to one place makes made it cheaper for people to buy the wine with delivery directly to them. And the same happened with a friend in, in New Orleans and the same happened for North Carolina, same happened for to Los Angeles. So grouping was, 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 was a very interesting turn. I w- it wasn't planned, but <laughs> seeing how the prices we were giving for delivery, it just made sense to don't get one case get 10 cases. And that's where we, we, it, it was an incredible increase in, in, in sales. So what I particularly like about this is this is a very creative way of if everybody says, no, you cannot sell direct, uh, you cannot sell imported products direct to U.S. consumers legally in the U.S. That's a right reserved only to domestic producers. You found a way and it worked. It worked because our local logistics partner has that solution. So it's not my solution, it's not Frieza Winery's solution, but it's theirs. So they have they have the contacts to get this done. Okay, my point is very simply, if it existed, it existed for everybody. You're the one who doubled onto it, found it and exploited it for this particular project. Can you talk about who that is? And is, is that something that is replicatable for all people? It's not uh, that difficult for other wineries to find uh, their local uh, suppliers that can do this. Um, as I said, our supplier is a small, tiny company that works with DHL, TNT, FedEx, you, you, you name it, with all of the big, you know, shippers. And they just found, you know, they, they signed contracts with them and they group that they decide, like, okay, sending to the U.S. from here to there goes with DHL, and then from there on, it's their importer in place that decides who's going to be taking, you know, the twelve cases to Sonoma, and there we we would not lose track, but we would have a new tracking system to to look at where is the wine going. So, you know, our local company is affiliated with mailboxes, etc. And I know of other affiliated offices in the province of Treviso that do the same service. So it's just really looking and searching. You know, as a buyer, you're looking for, for services. You, you really have to do the work and find the right supplier. Okay. So um, bringing it to a close, there's a lot of innovation and creativity here. You have a background in it in terms of marketing and um, training, both at the corporate level and presumably um, academically. What can a listener take from this and apply? Not necessarily copy that which you did because you were trying to solve a specific problem and now opened up basically a new channel for selling in the U.S. But for, for most people who are listening, what, what can they take away from this and put to use immediately? Uh, what I say normally to marketers that are in the wine industry is look outside the wine industry, what other brands are doing. Brands that people consume on a daily basis. Um, there's a lot to, to learn from non-wine brands <laughs> when it comes to marketing. 
Um, another thing that I keep saying is don't always think of, you know, the execution part of whatever you're doing. You, you need to fit that into the strategic long-term vision of, of the brand that you're working with. And very often that long-term vision of where are we going, what do we want to reach in three years, five years is, is not even considered. So the short-term thinking of let's do this, let's do this campaign, let's do that campaign lasts, you know, two weeks, three weeks, three months, and six months later, people forget to look back and see the effects of things. So th there has to be a better balance between thinking long-term in terms of marketing and also the short-term, which is activating your sales and pushing sales through. There, there's a lack in, in thinking in terms of this. And then another thing that I think is, is really important, especially moving forward, is how do you engage with your consumers? And it's not just sending emails. How do you do a two-way engagement with your consumers? How do you get them engaged and hooked on what you're doing? Have them participate because that's how you, you create more loyalty. That's how you create more, you know, co-creating with the consumers is such a winning thing in marketing that I don't see that happening a lot in wine marketing. And, and I'd like to see more of that. And the key to the 6,000 project was really in the co-creation of what the label ended up being, which was called Refresh, which is was very nice for the end of the year of 2020 to we all want to hit that refresh button, right? So, so as I listen to what you said, and I agree with everything you did say about uh, co-creating the other word that's used here is user-generated content. I think uh, co-creating is more powerful concept than just user-generated content. And you're basically enlisting other people to tell your story in their words to their friends. In this particular case, you've moved it up a level or two so that they're participating, not just telling the story. And they take ownership of it. And I think that leads to the, the advice I give to most of my clients is you need to take responsibility for selling and marketing your products. If you're bringing something into the U.S., you can't just leave that to your importer or distributor or some other people down the line. At the end of the day, it begins with you and it ends with you. And if you come up with creative ideas, people are going to want to get behind that because it works and it sells. And um, at the end of the day, that's what we're trying to do. There's nothing more powerful than, than as a consumer that you feel that you're being taken care of, that you're being hugged, that you're, you're, you know, that, that, that your word matters. So giving the opportunity for, to give a voice to the customer, for them to speak up and make choices is, is incredibly powerful. Power. Now you're giving them the power to be part of this brand. And, you know, not everybody can own a winery like you, but uh, they can get the satisfaction out of participating in making a select uh, successful wine project. I thought it was brilliant. Um, and a, a big thank you to Rika Haros of Sfriso Winery in the Veneto. Is there anything that you wanted to add? I thought what you just said was was wonderful. So. Thank you, Steve, for having me and um, having the opportunity to share uh, what I did last year. It was very gratifying. It was wonderful to 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 be able to do this. And, and, you know, we were all locked in our own countries, but I felt so close to all of the people that were all over the world because we were co-creating something together towards the end of the year. 
you know, to have that bottle on our tables and, and say like, we've done this together. It was, it was really nice also for me, <laughs> not just because. So you said you're, you're doing this again, or you're doing another project. Uh, where does this go? What's next? What did, yeah. <laughs> it, will, it will be a different project. It won't be about, um, it will have our wines in it, but it will be um, a different project to support a local community up in the Dolomites. There was, back in 2018, there was a horrible storm that uprooted a lot of the trees um, all throughout Veneto and Trentino. And we know that the trees up in the Dolomites are extremely important. And then this year, there was a lot of snow. So a lot of the hiking tracks, and especially one that I really love, that is an educational track, has been destroyed. And communities there don't have money to clean up the mess. And what we are going to do is to donate 100% of the profits for them to, to clean up and restore the tracks, the hiking tracks. So what's the name of that project and how can people who are listening to this uh, participate or learn more about it? It will be launched soon. It, it will probably have the 6,000 project as its, its running brand, but it will, I, I'm still thinking, but I think it, I will host it in a completely different website, which is part of my new enterprise that I'm launching soon. So, Okay. So is there a, a social media site or, plat or a place that you talk about this stuff? Is it, I'm wondering here, you know, LinkedIn, uh, where could people who, who are listening to this and you're not telling me now, <laughs> and they want to see what's going on, where can they go two weeks hence that uh, they can find out about this? Everyone can link up with me. Uh, I'm everywhere, Reka Haros, in all of the Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, uh, Instagram, you will find me under my name and, and, and surname. And I'll be blasting out about this everywhere very shortly. So so you'll see it. I will repeat it on my LinkedIn feed for anyone who's listening. So you will find out uh, about the new project. Rika, that was just a, a fabulous interview. Thank you very much for participating with us and sharing the creativity of, of what you've done. And I look forward to success of what's coming down the pike. This is Steve Ray with Get U.S. Market Ready with Italian Wine People part of the Italian Wine Podcast. And I want to thank Rika Haros for being my guest this week. And we look forward to seeing you back same time, same place next week. Thank you all very much. Thank you, Steve. This is Steve Ray. Thanks again for listening on behalf of the Italian Wine Podcast.